And I think, you know, what all of us need to embrace more is an abundance mindset and a recognition that the more we put into something, the more we're going to get out of it. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top-down profits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Chris Putnam Walkerly. She's a global philanthropy advisor at Putnam Consulting and also an award-winning author and speaker. She works as a trusted advisor and strategist to help ultra-high-worth donors and leaders of foundations, corporate giving programs, and family offices to increase their effectiveness and impact of their charitable giving. She has spent years working directly with high-net-worth donors and those that control a lot of philanthropic dollars to help them understand how to invest those dollars. So it's a very unique perspective. And we dig into her advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers on how they should be engaging in conversations and advising these types of donors. We also talk about her new book, Delusional Altruism. And so let's dive into the conversation with Chris. Chris, currently you're a trusted advisor and strategist that help really ultra high worth donors and leaders of foundations, corporate giving programs, families, et cetera, increase their effectiveness and impact of charitable giving. But before we dive into your work that you do today with these funders, I would love to hear more about what got you into the philanthropic space or what was the squiggle that led you to the work that you do today with funders? I like the squiggle. The squiggle was... My very first job out of college, I was, I moved to San Francisco and worked for a nonprofit organization that was trying to change U.S. policy in Central America and El Salvador in particular. And so this was during El Salvador's civil war. Um, And one of the ways that we tried to get the word out about what was happening in that country at the time was using the brand spanking new technology of the day which was the fax machine. And so, you know, we used faxes then the way we use social media now, which was really to get the word out quickly to um, our donors, to our supporters, to get them to, you know, call their congressperson to vote for this bill or against that bill to show up for a demonstration. And we use faxes all the time. Uh, You know, we would send them fax alerts multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. However, being a nonprofit, we decided we couldn't possibly afford our own fax machine. It would be too expensive and all of our money needed to go to, you know, help people in El Salvador. So we borrowed the fax machine from an organization 10 blocks away. So every day, somebody would walk 10 blocks there and 10 blocks back, which is like a mile round trip to send a fax. Now, fast forward, and about two years later, I was on my very first delegation to El Salvador, and we were bringing international aid and support. And we walk into the first organization that we were there to support. And what do you imagine is the very first thing that I saw? It was a fax machine. It was the largest fax machine I'd ever seen in my life. You know, this thing practically, you know, made the coffee. It collated, it stapled, it faxed, it copied. It did everything. And I was really shocked because um, this was my you know, first experience in El Salvador. We were bringing the international aid. They were reliant upon international aid. And I thought, how could this nonprofit afford a fax machine 
when we in the U.S. didn't feel that we could afford one. So I asked the executive director and he looked at me like I was insane. And he said, well, of course we need a fax machine. We rely upon sending faxes to get the word out. (laughs) And it was my first, um, here's the squiggle. It was my first experience with what I now call delusional altruism, which I know we'll talk about is the topic of my latest book. But it really was how I think both in the nonprofit sector as well as in the philanthropic sector, we are genuine in our altruism. We're really trying to make a difference, change the world, change communities, but we're delusional in that we're getting in our own way and we're actually preventing ourselves from having the impact that we seek. And so that was my experience because we we really wanted to help people. But imagine if instead of, you know, walking a mile every day to send a fax, we spent that hour, I don't know, fundraising, <laughs> calling donors. You know, we could have raised so much more money um, to send to El Salvador, but it was that scarcity mindset that was really holding us back. And so that really propelled me into my nonprofit and then philanthropy career. I went to work at Stanford evaluating youth violence programs, and that was funded by the California Wellness Foundation. That intrigued me about the role and power of philanthropy. So then I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. Um, and from there, I began consulting on, first on the side and then full time. And it's been 20 years now that I've been advising and consulting to funders and donors. Yeah, I love how you said we get in our way. We've been talking a lot about that with many of our guests and how we almost limit what's possible by our own mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm of what is when it would be a lot better to focus on listening first and then observing how we might move forward. So I want to double click on that. You mentioned your new book, um, Delusional Altruism. Altruism. Um, I would love to have you explain what that means and kind of double tap into the concept and why you felt like now was the time to bring this to the forefront. Yeah, so Delusional Altruism, it published last year, and it really is about how, you know, in advising funders of all kinds, you know, family foundations, corporate giving programs, ultra high net worth donors, for the past 20 years, I saw them making the same mistakes over and over again. And it didn't really matter how big they were, where they were located, or what the issue was they were focusing on. But it really means, you know, they really do want to make a difference with their giving. However, they are getting in their own way and they often don't realize it. And so by delusional, I don't mean crazy. I mean, you know, they're just clinging on to some misguided beliefs and practices that are really holding them back. And so I wrote the book because I felt like I wanted to, you know, these are mistakes that all of us make. I make them all. Um, And they apply really to business and nonprofit as well. But I wanted to show funders what these delusions are so that they can begin to stop doing them. And then the second half of the book is really all about transformational giving, which to me means how do you have a lasting impact on whatever issue you care about as a funder, but also by transforming yourself and how you give. Because I think how you give is as important as what you give. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Would you mind kind of sharing some of those insights? Like what are the elements of kind of transformational giving or what are the the guide rails or guardrails that you provide uh, philanthropists to think through as they want to move more from delusion to transformation in their investing? Yes. 
Well, one of the key ones is shifting from a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of abundance. And too often funders, you know, again, regardless of how many millions or billions of dollars they have, often operate from a mindset of scarcity, which means um, a couple things. It means, you know, sort of a misguided belief that maintaining a Spartan operation somehow equates to delivering greater value into the community. But it really is a mindset first. You know, before you think about what you're investing your money in, it's really what's in your mind. And it's things like um, believing that you're too small to make a difference. You know, maybe, uh, you know, whatever issue or cause you care about, let's say it's mental health, you might think, wow, that's a huge problem. You know, how do we tackle it? Is it, how do we reduce stigma of mental health? How do we get better access to care? Um, how do we have health insurance parity so that people actually have proper mental health services covered in their insurance? There's lots of different ways you can approach it. And some funders can feel overwhelmed by all those options, but also feel like, gosh, I only have a million dollars to give away, or I only have a hundred million dollars to give away. That's not going to be enough. Right. And, um, and so, to, and so they, they kind of shrink back. Well, I can't really tackle the root causes of the problem. So let me just kind of put a Band-Aid solution on it. Or we, we don't have enough money to make a difference, so we'll just kind of give here and there and kind of call it a day. And, and so that is a scarcity mindset. Another one that I think nonprofit leaders listening will resonate with is funders that refuse to invest properly in the, in the nonprofit overhead in what what it really costs, what it truly costs to effectively run the nonprofit so that the nonprofit can have an impact on whatever it's working on. And, you know, to me, this is a huge problem because, you know, as a donor, you care about whatever, ending homelessness or arts education or uh, mental health or domestic violence. And if you find an organization that you think is doing really good work, they're making a difference. They have a great track record. Well, you know, wouldn't you want them to have the best talent, the uh, great fundraising abilities, uh, fabulous financial management systems, a great board of directors, the ability to evaluate themselves and make course corrections and improvements, um, technology, you know, that they need to be able to pivot as needed. Of course you do, right? You want them to, to have all these things because you know that that's what's needed to succeed. Um, but too often funders hold back on funding of those things. You know, that, that costs money, right? To, to find the best person, to hire top talent, to retain them, to conduct an evaluation, even to research and purchase the best, you know, financial management software, whatever it is, right? That costs resources. And so when funders um, only give grants for, I've heard donors that, you know, they'll fund the program, but not the personnel to run the program as if like it's being run by robots or something, or they'll um, only allocate funding in one year increments. And so the executive director of the nonprofit can't possibly plan ahead, you know, three years, can't possibly hire the right staff to, you know, come in and, and take on a three year initiative because they only have funding guaranteed for one year. So it really holds them back. Um, and, and so it's really, it's the delusion. You know, you think as a donor, you're being, I don't know, a good steward of your money or 
focused on efficiency or, I don't know, getting a great bang for your buck, but really all you're doing is hamstringing the nonprofit and decreasing their effectiveness because then they're forced to run around and collect money from multiple donors to kind of cobble together to fund the program. Uh, or, you know, they have to only do what they can do a year at a time. And, you know, people need to plan out further than that. And so you're really doing a disservice, but it's in the name of, you know, you think you're doing the right thing. You think you're being altruistic, but actually you're causing harm. So that to be is, you know, some examples of the scarcity mindset. And I really believe donors themselves need to invest in, in themselves to be the, to have the greatest impact as a donor. You really need to become the best philanthropist you can be. And by that, I mean, investing in yourself, in your own learning, coaching, advising, strategy, uh, or even, um, you know, taking the time to learn about community needs and build relationships with nonprofit leaders in your community. Those are all important investments in yourself as a funder that are important to make. But again, often donors instead feel guilty. Oh, I can't possibly, I have so much money. I need to give it all away. I can't possibly invest in myself. And I don't mean investing in yourself, like taking your family board of directors to the Four Seasons in Maui for your retreat, you know, all expenses paid, first class flights. What I do mean is simply, you know, taking making sure that you are equipped with the information and knowledge you need to be effective as a funder. And so that's an example. And I think, you know, what all of us need to embrace more is an abundance mindset and a recognition that the more we put into something, the more we're going to get out of it. There's a couple of great points I want to double tap on. The first was you mentioned this idea of scarcity versus abundance. Um, we've talked a lot about that here at Virtuous. We actually had multiple sessions at the summit uh, reference that shift. You talked about the, you're, you're speaking directly to like funders how would you encourage nonprofit leaders to bridge that conversation with potential funders or current funders? What, because many of those listening are nonprofit leaders. So what guidance do you have to those fundraising nonprofit leaders as they engage with donors or funders to cultivate a different mindset or at least assist or guide towards this mindset that you're referring to? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And and need for nonprofits. I really do think that nonprofit leaders need to embrace that abundance mindset. And I start with two things when I talk to nonprofit leaders. One is to recognize that the funder needs you, like as part of this equation of the giving money away part, they're giving it away to someone, right? To some entity, to a nonprofit organization, to basically to help the funder, the donor to achieve their mission. So if your funder is anyone, a community foundation, a corporate giving program, an ultra high net worth donor, you know, they have a mission of what kind of change they want to see in the world, but they're not the one usually creating that change, right? They want people to be self-sufficient and have, you know, job skills and, and get high paying jobs so they can live independently, but the donor is not the one providing the workforce development training or helping build um, and support affordable housing with supportive wraparound services or, you know, helping with resumes and interview practicing and all that kind of stuff, right? They're not the one doing that. They're giving money away to do that. 
that might be their belief, uh, but and their goal, but it's the nonprofit that is actually delivering those services. And so I think the mindset shift is to recognize the value that you bring as the nonprofit. The donor, the philanthropist cannot be philanthropic without you as a nonprofit leader. And so, so it's a mindset shift of also a, approaching the donor as a peer, as a peer and as a partner, not as someone with your handout. Um, and because you're bringing value, it's really not that much different than sales. You know, I think about, you know, sales versus service, like you might be selling something, but if you, be, if you genuinely believe it's going to add value to the person buying it, like when I quote unquote sell, you know, philanthropy advising or coaching, it's because I, I genuinely believe that, that my clients are going to be better off. They're going to have greater clarity, a better strategy, more effective giving, they're going to have more joy. And so to me, it's, it's the value that I'm bringing um, to that partnership and that equation. And so I think those are really important mindset shifts that uh, nonprofit leaders need to embrace. The other thing you mentioned was uh, funders that maybe limit how their funds can be used for what maybe is referred to as programs. Maybe that excludes staff um, or other administration or expenses that are wrapped around kind of providing that actual program. Nonprofits that I talk to are always like, how do I fundraise for overhead? And I know you talked about mindset originally, and I always push back. It's like, why do we call it overhead? I know. (laughs) Uh, So that's a starting point. But then also they're like, well, or like, you know, they think about the fundraising programs, administration, like pie chart or whatever their organizations held to. And they're like, well, we just, we just don't have enough funding for this. We have a lot of program funding, but we're trying to figure out how to manage all this. How do we get more donors to invest in operations, administration, staffing, et cetera? What advice do you have for the nonprofit leader uh, on that topic as they engage with funders or even think about an approach internally before they go out to funders? Yeah, so three suggestions. Um, The first is to use the past year as a really good, you know, case study for yourself as to what's needed for a nonprofit to function effectively. And so for nonprofits, uh, and quite frankly, this is true for funders too, but to look back in the past year of all this pivoting, you know, that we've been doing and ask yourself, what, um, what changes did we make last year that proved really effective? Whatever that is, you know, we went from an in-person gala to a virtual, virtual gala, or uh, we converted our services online or whatever. What did we try last year in the year of crisis that worked well? And then also ask, you know, what did we try last year that didn't work so well? Because probably, you know, you tried a bunch of stuff and some of it was a flop, right? Which is fine. Uh, also ask, what, what did we put in place in our nonprofit or our foundation previous, before COVID hit, that really helped us during it? So you might have upgraded your technology. You might have put different systems in place. You might have had a much better handle on your cash flow. Uh, you might have beefed up your board of directors. You might have created some kind of communication plan, whatever that strategy, whatever that was, what did you put in place just coincidentally that happened to really help you during COVID? And then similarly, you know, what didn't you have in place that would have really helped you? And, you know, in retrospect, if you could do it all over again, what would you have put in place? Would you have created a strategic plan? Would you have, you know, kind of upgraded your board of directors, whatever, and document that like, 
I mean, like on a couple pages on a Word document, write down. And so, and that I think to me is kind of the, the fodder, the insight that you can take to a funder to talk about the value of all that stuff, you know, the value of investing in strategic planning and you had to pay someone, a consultant to help you do it. The value of evaluating your services and, and the cost of that, both in dollars and in staff time, um, the value of a communications plan so you could quickly get the word out, um, as well as honestly, what didn't work, you know, and therefore now you need that investment so that you do have a better handle on your finances, you do have a better banking relationship with your bank, whatever. Um, so that's one thing is really use your own experience. And honestly, you know, what worked and what didn't work and what you need to demonstrate the, the importance of those kinds of costs and investments in what funders often refer to as nonprofit capacity building. Um, secondly, there is actually a resource you can turn to, uh, and it's called, I believe, the Full Cost Project. If you Google Full Cost Project, it should lead you to, um, there's a, a, an organization that's called Philanthropy California, and it's a network of three associations of foundations in California, Southern California grant makers, Northern California grant makers, and San Diego grant makers, I believe. And they came together with another organization and really kind of created a whole report and set of resources about the importance of funders funding the full costs of nonprofit work. And so it's really looking at the outcomes you're trying to achieve and backing into what it actually is going to cost to pull that off and make that happen, um, as opposed to, you know, arbitrary 10% overhead limits, which really make no sense. So that'll be a really good resource to turn to. And then the third ex- suggestion I'd have is share um, examples of other funders that are doing this. And there's quite a lot. Um, so there's a lot of funders that are intentionally and publicly increasing the limits of how much money can be allocated in grants toward overhead. Um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, one of my clients, is a, the most recent example I know of. They just announced that they increased overhead rates from something like 12% to 20%. And there's a group of funders that uh, made a public announcement jointly, I believe in late 2019, about doing this as well. So I, I believe it was the Ford Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, and a few others um, that said, basically, you know, this is really important. We have not been sufficiently funding the true costs of running nonprofit organizations and we need to do better and we're committing to doing better. So I think when you kind of show your funders examples of, you know, marquee name foundations, then that also can help them see this is actually a thing. (laughs) You know, there's others doing this. I'm not alone. And and why these funders have chosen to make those uh, changes. Yeah, there's power in people like you do things like this. See how. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. mindset of de-risking being the first or being different from the pack. Uh, it's an unfortunate social construct and bias that we have to deal with every day. Um, I, we've mentioned a few times this idea of impact. And I kind of want to zoom in on the word impact and get your perspective on how do you actually evaluate 
impact from a funder standpoint? And then how does how should nonprofits communicate around impact? And mm-hmm. I'll give a quick caveat as I was I've been talking to a lot of individuals that you know are similar to you who advise um, funders or even um, chief development officers that work with a lot of uh, you know hyper or ultra rich or wealthy donors or uh, high net worth donors. And they talk about this increased uh, questioning around like, well, what's the impact of this? How are you measuring impact? And it's almost like there's a, a more detailed requirement for nonprofits to showcase impact. So I'm curious how you advise your clients to think about it and then how you would advise nonprofits to communicate impact to funders. Yeah, that's a great question. So what I advise funders to do is to simplify the complex rather than complexify the simple. And by that, I mean, too often, I think funders add unnecessary complexity to just about everything they're doing. And one of that, one of those ways is evaluation and impact. And so to me, what I advise funders to think about is three questions when they think about evaluating something. The first is, what do we want to learn? The second is, who needs to know? And the third is, What's the best way to get that information? And by that, I mean, um, it really allows you to kind of focus on what's most important and and right-size your expectations. So when you say, what do I want to learn about, you know, name a social problem, Um, you know, uh, let's just take domestic violence. Um, So what do you want to learn as a funder? Well, I don't know. There's lots of things you could learn. Do you want to learn that women who um, escape violent situations and seek the help of a local domestic violence agency are able to stay safe and live productive, healthy lives away from their abuser? Do you want to know that there's um, high rates of satisfaction uh, from the women uh, who go through these programs and feel that they've learned about themselves and about their experience and the resources they have and, and, and how they can keep themselves safe. You know, there's different kinds of things that you can learn and you, chances are pretty good. You can't learn it all with the resources you have. So I think really dialing in on what's most important to you to learn as a funder or that the field maybe needs to know. And the second question, who needs to know, I think is a really important one because, you know, if you're a family foundation and you want to know that you're, you know, funding on early childhood education is in fact helping result in more kids having access to high quality preschool uh, and, and, and your board is the one that needs to know, like it's your board, they've made this funding allocation, they want to just know, you know, over time, what's the impact, what success are we having, then that's one kind of audience and that's a, you know, that's just one audience. If if what you're, if what you're trying to do though, is demonstrate to uh, President Biden, as apparently people have been doing, <laughs> that you know we need massive investments in high quality preschool for all kids in the country, then you need more likely more robust data and evidence, right, to make that kind of a recommendation. That now billions of dollars are going to be federal dollars will be allocated to. Um, early childhood education, it's a, it's a different kind of evidence that you need than just letting your board know what's working. Letting your board know could be 
you bring in the nonprofit executive director to a board meeting and they talk about impact, or you bring in, you know, evaluation data from that nonprofit and you say, great, sounds like you're doing a great job. So that kind of helps right size the effort, the evaluation design, the money that's spent collecting all that data. Um, so those are kind of questions that I think are really important to ask. And then um, how they should communicate impact would be early and often. <laughs> and so by that, I mean, you know, why not, as part of your communication strategy, talk about, you know, what's working well, what you're learning, early indicators of something, a testimonial from a client, what your initial data are, what your, you know, data are over time, you know, whatever information you're able to gather, gather it and communicate about it. Um, and, you know, like all of us, we learn through facts and we also learn from stories. And I think it's both are important. Like people want data and they all, but they'll remember the story. And I think those stories are really important. Um, and then secondly is to be honest about what it takes to evaluate. You know, I used to do a lot of evaluation uh, professionally for funders and nonprofits and, it's not nothing, right, to even if you're simply conducting a bunch of phone interviews or conducting a survey, uh, it takes money to do that properly, to design it, to make sure you're asking the right questions, you're reaching the right people, you're analyzing the findings, etc. And so be willing, really, to reach out to funders and fund rates around that kind of um, evaluation capacity, if it's ongoing or if it's kind of one time bring in an evaluator to help you. That's a, that's a, I think, very legitimate request. Um, and it costs money. You can't just do that for free or grab some graduate students <laughs> and put them to work. It's not, it doesn't work as well. Um, so be honest about and communicate about the need and, you know, educate your funder too. It's not uncommon for a funder to say, Hey, I'm going to give you $5,000 but I want you to evaluate the impact of your project. And, you know, it's educating the donor to say, hey, well, thank you for the $5,000. The program itself actually costs $50,000 just to run. We really appreciate your contribution of 10% of the budget. However, you know, we still don't have the money to do the evaluation. So, you know, like help them understand how it's unrealistic to expect evaluation data from a small grant, for example. And then the third suggestion I'd give you is, or both funders and nonprofits, um, is to really think about how do you engage the people most impacted by the issue into the evaluation process itself. Um, and, you know, so you think about, you know, there's participatory grant making, there's participatory evaluation and, and making sure that, you know, what you're wanting to learn, the data that you're capturing are relevant for all the people involved, all the communities involved, and that, you know, even that they're involved maybe in collecting that data or in analyzing that data and certainly in utilizing that data. So um, I think that's a really important point to make as well. And there's a resource, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Geraldine Coffey, who's an amazing evaluator based in California, and she's been involved in a project called Equitable Evaluation. And there's been a lot written about that as well. So as we think about, you know, racial equity and racial justice, which is so important, how do you embed that in evaluative practices as well? So I would definitely recommend folks check that out. 
We're almost at time. I, I did want to wrap up with one final question. You know, obviously the last year has been a very interesting year for a lot of reasons. How would you advise nonprofit leaders change their conversations with funders because of what's happened over the last 30 or uh, 13 months um, in as they engage with them in 2021 and beyond. So like for, if you think about the last 12 months and all the things that have happened as nonprofit leaders go back to funders over the next 12 months, how should they change the conversations they're having with funders based on that? Well, I think the best way for a nonprofit to have a conversation with a funder is to have clarity on their strategy. And so by that, I mean, you know, a strategy, a strategic plan really should be a, a, a framework that guides decision-making on a day-to-day basis that helps you get clarity on what you're trying to accomplish as a nonprofit or as a foundation for the next year. Uh, where are you today? And what are the most important you know, three or four things you're going to be focusing on to get you from where you are today to where you want to be 12 months from now? So you can align your people and your resources toward those top priorities. And it needs to be agile and flexible because things will keep changing. You know, the future is always uncertain and disruption and volatility are the new status quo. And so we need to also, you know, have a clear strategy, a refreshed strategy to guide us and also plan for disruption, plan for things to change and be have the confidence that you can change things along the way so that your strategy is always present and living and breathing and sentient. And so I really advise nonprofits and funders to regularly, at least annually, refresh their strategic plan and make sure that it's something that's being utilized literally at every staff meeting, board meeting. It's guiding decision-making among your team on a day-to-day basis. And I actually have a free resource that I think will be of interest to your listeners. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And it's a guide, it's equally applicable to funders and donors as it is to nonprofits, but it's really eight steps to, you know, plan ahead, even when change is constant. And it's a very practical guide. I think you'll find a lot of uh, value in it. Um, You can download it at eightthings.org. So again, it's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And you can download it at eightthings.org. And the reason I say that is because as a nonprofit, when you have clarity of your strategy, then you can be super clear walking into a conversation with a funder about where you're headed and how that funder can help you get there. And you can demonstrate that you, you know, you have been both, um, you know, adaptive in the past year and you're continuing to be agile and looking ahead and you're expecting disruption and you're ready for it, but you know you need the resources of the funder to help you make that happen and bring them along with you in your vision of what you're trying to accomplish. To me, that goes a long way um, in helping a funder have confidence that you know, you've got a, a plan, you know what you're doing, and you're very clear and they're very clear in how they can help you achieve that, achieve those goals. And similarly for funders, I think it's equally important for ultra high net worth donors, corporate giving programs, foundations to have clarity on their strategy as well um, for all the same reasons to guide their decision-making and make sure that their resources and talent are focused on what's most important. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the time, Chris. If people want to learn more about your work and um, how you 
support uh, funders, but also uh, just learn more about how they can engage better with funders, where should they uh, head? Yeah, actually, if they go to download that guide at 8things.org, that links to my website and they can find all the information about me there and how to connect with me on social uh, or email. Perfect. Well, we'll definitely include those links you mentioned in the show notes. So if you're interested and you're listening on your favorite podcast app, definitely check the notes area and you can grab those links. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. Oh,